Hello everyone and welcome to the Wilds Cast. Today we're going to be rebroadcasting a lunch and learn that Rabbi Wilds gave on Facebook Live. He starts off with a beautiful thought about Moses' journey as a leader and what that can teach us about our own lives. Plus, we continue our way through the Passover Seder by discussing the Magid section. So, without any further ado, here's Rabbi Wilds. Now, one of the uh, things I wanted to mention, which I thought would be really interesting, is one of the readings that we do on Passover. One of the readings um, about Moshe, and Moshe we spoke about last week is really an extraordinary personality. He, uh, we see him becoming a very, very forceful leader in the Jewish community. He repeatedly stands up to Pharaoh, and uh, he becomes ultimately the instrument through which the Jewish people are redeemed from our slavery. And uh, we see all the 10 plagues. We see Moshe really a confident kind of leader. Um, actually, the source sheet, Jonathan Brody, good question. Binyamin, um, I don't know if we'll get, yeah. Benyamin, if you can just post the same sh- source sheet that we've been using. And Jonathan Brody was the same source sheet as last week for some ideas for the Seder, which we're going to get into in just a few moments. I just want to share one idea and then we'll get into the Seder itself. Hey, it's my friend Ozzy Cutter is watching. Ozzy, Jonathan Brody is watching with you. Remember those days. (laughs) Hope Israel is great. So we see that Moshe confidently leads the Jewish people from Egypt. He keeps them calm when they start to panic. There's the source sheet, Jonathan Brody. Look how efficient the Manhattan Jewish experience is. And you remember when the Jewish people are finally leaving Egypt and then Pharaoh changes his mind and he sends the Egyptian legions And they're standing in front of the Red Sea and they are freaking out. Moshe's calm. Moshe splits the Red Sea through, of course, God's miracle. And he sees to it that everyone passes through safely. And that's the way we kind of look at Moshe, who's this kind of like calming figure, this great confident leader. But he didn't start out that way. If you go back to the beginning of Moshe's career, things were quite different. When God approaches Moshe at the burning bush, with this job proposal to save the Jews, Moshe is extraordinarily reluctant to accept. He says, Who am I to go before Pharaoh? I'm not a man of words. I'm heavy of tongue, heavy of speech. I'm not eloquent. And later he says, How is Pharaoh going to take me seriously? He's not going to even listen to me. With this speech problem that I have. Thank you, my friend. And yet, Moshe turns out to be far from a mere mumbler. He becomes quite articulate and confident before the most powerful leader in the world. And the question is, how did he make this happen? And I think this is a good thing to think about during the corona time. How do we deal with our own insecurities and our own anxieties um, and eventually become the people or the best version of ourselves uh, that we can become? There's a great um, popular author and counselor, Stephen Covey. I'm sure you've heard of Stephen Covey, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, he wrote. He tells the story of a guy who comes to his minister and he complains. He says to his minister, I don't feel like I love my wife anymore. What do you think I should do? And the minister turns back to him and says, love her. And he says, no, 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 you don't understand, I just... Um, I just shared with you that I'm not feeling that love for her. And his answer was a very, very simple one. There was another woman in a similar predicament with her husband, and she said that she started looking for small things, for the small things he did for me, and began to express appreciation. Like when he vacuumed the family room right after a night of popcorn and videos. I picked up his favorite candy, she said, at the drugstore. I complimented him on how we dressed when we went out. And I praised him when he began to do a little work on our basement. I looked for the good to appreciate, and I criticized a little less. Eight years later, she said, we still have our ups and downs, but now when I say I love you, there's actually a feeling. I am in love again and happy again with my husband. Love, she wrote, is a verb. It's interesting because in Hebrew, the Hebrew word for love is ahava, which is rooted in the two-letter shorish, Hav, which means to give, 
Love is not simply a feeling. Love is an action. Love is the result of giving to another person. Now, I'm not saying you're going to love anyone to whom you give, but if you do have that connection with another person, don't think it's going to continue to be there if you don't act, if you don't feed on the relationship, and you don't produce and give to the other person. Giving is a way of loving. And loving is, of course, a feeling, but it's a verb. It comes because we did something, not simply because we have a certain attitude or certain state of mind. Love, the feeling, will follow if it's preceded with love, the action. And we spoke about this a little last week. It's a very famous line from our sages. After one's actions will follow one's heart. The Sefer Achinach, uh, which was an unknown author of one of the most extraordinary books of early rabbinic literature, uh, wrote this, that it's after the things that we do that produce the feelings or the attitudes that we have in our hearts. We don't simply, in Judaism, uh, only do things when we feel like them, or only do things when we feel like intellectually this is the right thing. No, sometimes we know something's the right thing, we don't feel like it. So we just act as if. We just do it even though we may not be feeling it or even always agreeing with it. And that's why you're not a robot if you follow the laws of the Torah and you don't always understand them because you believe that those laws are going to somehow enhance your life. They're going to somehow have an impact on you. And even if you don't believe in every single little thing, and I talked last week about the tefillin, how I used to be cynical about these Chabad guys in the middle of the street putting on tefillin on people. What are they thinking? Maybe this guy doesn't believe in this stuff. Does he even know what's written in those black boxes? Sometimes it doesn't matter because we believe in the power of mitzvot. That you do one mitzvah, it has an impact and it's going to cause you or propel you to do another mitzvah, mitzvah gorer mitzvah. And the same applies in all aspects of our work. If we want success in our work, if we want love in our relationships, if we want a real and true feeling for our creator, then we need to do things. My friend Tuvia Book, our tour guide on Israel every year, always says, is to Jew is to do. You gotta love that. To Jew is to do. And that's why the Torah is mitzvah-centered, because mitzvah aren't simply thoughts or feelings, they're actions. And that's why we surround ourselves with mitzvah from morning to night. And that is the same lesson with Moshe. Moshe comes to Hashem and he says, I can't talk. And God says back, I hear your problem. Talk. What do you mean? I just said I have a problem speaking. I know. Take Aaron with you. We'll work around it. Just do it. Just do it. And it wasn't some kind of divine miracle or some kind of magic trick. Through his actions, Moshe became the person he had the potential to be. And if you read through all the psukim, if you read through some of the verses, I'll share with them with you. In the beginning, Hashem sends Aaron to help Moshe. Moshe's primary job at this point is basically just to... Um, uh, is to instruct Aaron what to do during the confrontation with Paro. And Aaron, really, in the beginning, is the more active party. Moshe is basically just parroting Hashem's words. Ki daber alechem paro lemor. Right, this is in the beginning, in chapter 7 of the book of Exodus, when Paro tells you to say, Tznu lachem mofet, right? Um, Give me a sign. How do I know you're really representing anything real here? Give me a sign. Show me, like, some proof, some evidence and you will say to Aaron, take your staff, he'll throw it down before Pharaoh, and it'll turn into a snake. Remember, that's one of the tricks, one of the miracles that God gave Moshe and Aaron to be able to demonstrate the power that they were the real thing. And that happens, um, and, and that's the first encounter, but it was Aaron who initiated the whole thing. Moshe was just sort of there. But then... Again, it happens with the first plague. He says again, tell Aaron to take your staff and, 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 and wave it towards the Nile. That's how the Nile turns into blood, the first of the ten plagues. Right? But by the second plague already, you can note a subtle shift. What happens by the second plague? After Paro, after Paro calls, uh, asks them to call off the plague because his entire Nile has turned into blood, Moshe improvises with his own initiative. I want to welcome Gabi, uh, Maya, Michal, uh, Tamar, Ron Brody, Rachel, uh, everyone else is joining. We welcome you guys. Leomer Moshe Paro, after Paro tells him to call off the plague, you see that Moshe starts improvising a little. Moshe says to Paro, 
He says, glorify yourself over me, right? And I will call off, they're like, ask me, and I'll call off the frogs. That's the, the next plague, right? That was not in the script, right? God had never told Moshe to tell that to Aaron. Moshe's starting to gain confidence. And by the end of the, of the section, we notice switch. Bayas Hashem Kidvar Moshe. It says that, that Hashem followed the words of Moshe. And God, after he hears Moshe telling Paro that I'm going to speak to God, I'll, you know, we'll see if we can get rid of these frogs for you, I'll talk to my people, God is following uh, Moshe now. Right? Moshe started off very passive. He was doing nothing. Aaron was doing everything. He was just a vehicle to implement God's will, and now Hashem is willing to follow Moshe's lead. And basically what you see is a real transformation in Moshe's own life. He develops, and as Moshe develops, Aaron, his brother's role, begins to diminish. Until we read about the plagues of hail, of Barad, and of locust, and of Arbe, that Moshe takes his own stick and performs these miracles by himself. And when we read about the Kriyat Yamsuf, the splitting of the Red Sea, Moshe takes charge of the situation as well. We spoke about Nachshon ben Amanyadav last week. And it's really a very important human story because the story of the Exodus, we look at it as very miraculous. And of course, there are a lot of miracles and supernatural events. But Moshe's transformation is quite normal. It's basic human psychology. His development from someone who perceives himself as inadequate into someone who ultimately confronts and defeats Pharaoh has everything to do with Moshe performing certain actions, taking the lead. When Moshe acts like a leader, he becomes a leader. When he starts stepping up onto the plate in terms of his behavior and his actions, he's transformed from Moshe to Moshe Rabbeinu, to Moses, our rabbi, our teacher, and our leader. And the same goes with us. That's why I always like to quote that great Nike um, line, just do it, just do it, man. Sometimes you just got to take the bull by the horns and do it, even if you don't think it's going to come out perfect. We had another discussion a few weeks ago, not letting the perfect becoming the enemy of the good. If we want to be a more sensitive person, it's not going to happen from, uh, by reading books about sensitivity. I'm not telling you not to read books about sensitivity. Maybe you come up with some brilliant ideas. But it's not going to come about studying about it or talking about it. It's ultimately going to come from performing an act of chesed. Just to uh, uh, apply that to what's happening today, I was very uh, proud to see a picture of my good friend Avi Yashavsky. My friend Moshe Bellows did this as well. They all had corona. They, thank God, uh, um, made it through it fine, and they're, been, uh, they're, they're done with it, thank God. And they went to the hospital to give plasma, to give blood, because the hospitals are really in need of blood, specifically from people who have survived and been, I won't say cured, there's no real cure, but they're, who have made it through, Baruch Hashem, are healthy um, from corona. That is how you become a more sensitive person, by giving, by uh, taking action. And if we want love, I start off by talking about love, that's also only going to come through action, because as Stephen Covey says, and as the Jewish tradition teaches, love is really a verb. And it's not just Stephen Covey. I mentioned before about the Hebrew word, ahava, love, comes from giving. And the same, by the way, applies in the spiritual realm. You know, I'm sure many of us are feeling a little in a funk spiritually right now. Right? We don't have MG to pump you up. We don't have all your friends. We don't have like Shuki on a Friday night lights. I, we got Yosef and myself in, my, in our apartment here doing what we can do. It's not the same, okay? But there's a lot of things that you could be doing right now, learning and growing. And I commend all of you for being on. Well, our numbers have been amazing. Last night, Havdallah and Kabbalat Shabbat, and now Lunch and Learn. Welcome, Jack. Thanks for coming on, guys. There's a lot of stuff that you could be doing. We could be praying every day. You don't need a minion to pray. Open up a prayer book. Begin with the Brachot HaShachar, with the morning blessings. Say the Shema. Say the silent devotion. Try to get into routine every day of at least doing those three things. That would be an amazing, amazing thing. We had a minion Madden this, this morning. I want to thank Rabbi Shuki for um, organizing that. Um, but even if you couldn't get on there, you could pray, when we get off and we're done here, you could open up a prayer book and daven mincha. Mincha is the afternoon service. Just look for mincha and recite the silent devotion to yourselves. You get, 
excuse me, into a routine of davening, when you never really davened before Corona, and when you get back to MJ, you'll be a better davening, a davener. Maybe this is the time to start improving on our Hebrew. Who wants to do that? Break my teeth over the words. Some of you have the MG transliterated Sidur at home. That's a great way to learn it. Or just start doing Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalad, and start getting a little more proficient in your davening. So when this thing is over, you're not just, you didn't just wait it out. But like, here's all the things that I can do now that I couldn't do before Corona started. That's an unbelievable thing. Scott Shapiro, welcome, welcome back, my friend. So I, I think it, it applies in the spiritual realm. I remember somebody years ago who uh, resurfaced at MG after taking hiatus. Uh, they just didn't show up for quite a while. And I asked him, where have you been? And he said, oh, well, I haven't been feeling so much, so I didn't come. So I said, oh, maybe you didn't come because you haven't been feeling so much. He goes, I just said that. I said, yeah, but maybe... If you come, you'll start feeling a little more. No, but we got into this whole argument or discussion, really. Like, how does it work? Do you do Jew? Do you do Jewish because you're feeling it? Or do you want to... Do you do Jewish because you're not feeling it? And you want to start feeling it, right? Sometimes you're like, well, when I'm in the mood, I'll dive in when I'm in all this. No, it's, it's Dafka the other way. You want to get into the mood. You want to feel connected. You got to do something. And it applies in our relationship with our fellow human being, in a romantic relationship, in just a, uh, an acquaintance, in a friend, a platonic relationship. And it applies in our relationship with Hashem. If we're not feeling something, that is precisely the moment when we should start to do something, when we should pick up a book and open it up and start reading some Torah or perform a mitzvah or start davening or putting on a tefillin, whatever it is. That's the way to start feeling something is by doing something and not waiting um, to do something when we feel it, right? Chicken or the egg, very, very important idea. Feelings don't operate in a vacuum. And uh, the Rambam said this also, the great Maimonides, that according to one's knowledge of God will be one's love for Hashem. Right? When you just say, oh, I love God. Love is a feeling, of course, but feelings are produced by actions. My mother, blessed memory, used to always say, she say, you know, I loved your father, before we got married. But the love that we have now, after marriage, used to say, used to always really embarrass me. You can't even compare it, because before marriage, it was just like a, a sentiment, based on maybe an attraction, some chemistry. But afterwards, when you're constantly doing things for the other person, and the years go on, and you build constant giving, constant giving, and giving, and giving, then the love and the feeling is gonna grow in a way that it can't if it's just a nice little thing. Uh, by the way, I want to mention one thing before. That's all I got to say about this idea. I wanted to begin our discussion today with a nice little idea of just do it, man, and come up right now with one or two things, Jewish things that you want to do. Maybe it's preparing for Pesach in a way that you never prepared for Pesach before. Anybody has any questions about kashering things? I was up till three. 3.30 in the morning, kashring things in my own apartment here. Um, maybe it's reciting prayers every day during the Passover holiday, which perhaps we never did before, even if we could go to synagogue, and get yourself a Jewish prayer book that has the Passover prayers in it, and do that every day. Uh, or maybe add some stuff into your Pesach Seder. There's all new things. Make sure that this corona period of time doesn't simply go by like we waited it out, we waited it out. No, now my Hebrew is better. Now I'm praying on a regular basis. Now I've built my relationship with Hashem in this way. I've built my relationship with, my, uh, with a friend in another way. Someone was asking me about um, dating during this period of time. And it's a really, really good question. I would never tell anyone never to stop dating. You gotta continue. It's a weird time. Uh, if you already have a pre-existing relationship, that's always a little better. Uh, than starting a new one online. But you want to know something? You know, somebody called me, they were supposed to be fixed up with somebody, and I said, get fixed up with them. Uh, go out with them. Have a... Um, I wouldn't do Facebook Live. <laughs> um, I think that's a little too public. I mean, that was a joke. But why not have a Zoom date? It could be very romantic. You dress up, 
you take your uh, the girl out, you know, whatever, or the guy, whatever, and you're you take them out and uh, just find a nice place in your apartment where you could have a nice conversation, maybe have a cup of coffee together if it's a first date, maybe you move to a glass of wine if it's already the third or fourth fourth date. L'chaim. But there's no reason to stop interacting with people virtually if we can't interact with people in person. Uh, do not get together with that person. I am not suggesting, nor do I want this to be construed. I don't want to get a call from the health department shutting my Facebook live feed down. I'm not encouraging you to get together with anyone. I'm telling you do it online. Uh, but don't, don't keep your life hung up. Um, or waiting on hold because of this corona thing. Try to move forward as much as you possibly can without having that physical interaction. Obviously, it's not the same. But look, we're, we're connecting with each other. It's not the same. I think Zoom is more interactive. Um, I'm doing this on Facebook Live, honestly, because um, I feel like I can hit more people and it sits on the live. And then more people who can't come from 12.30 to 1.15, 1.30 can then see it later. We have a lot of people who watch this later, and it just sits there, which I really, really love. Okay, I want to get back to the Seder now, and uh, tomorrow night is going to be our mock Seder, so please join us. But we've been talking about different ideas that uh, you can share uh, at your Seder, and uh, we spoke last time about the four sons, and we left off with the concept of gratitude. Gratitude is a theme which is running throughout the Seder, um, all the studies, we've spoken about how expressing gratitude literally makes us healthier, makes us happier, lowers blood pressure, improves our immune functioning. Who doesn't want their immune functioning getting improved now, right? Facilitates better sleep, believe it or not. Um, crazy studies of PTSD um, victims from Vietnam. It was a 2006 study, how it actually helped... Um, Vietnam vets who um, continue to uh, um, experience um, PTSD and how expressing gratitude can really, really uh, help. So we talked about a couple of things in the Haggadah. I have my Haggadah right here. Um, where, I mean, so much, the whole theme, really, of the Haggadah of Passover is really uh, to express gratitude. And... Uh, and I, my favorite song, hey Saren, welcome. My favorite song is the um, is uh, the Dayenu. I love when you go to one of these Jewish weddings, these Jewish weddings, and they sing Dayenu. I was like, that's a Passover song. Why are they singing that at a wedding? And then I thought about it. You know what? Maybe the couple is grateful that they got married and they're singing it at a wedding. Day Dayenu, Day Dayenu. Dayenu means it would have been enough. My brother always likes at this point of the uh, when we get to this point. He yells, yeah, Dayenu, it's enough. Let's get to the meal already. I'm hungry. Uh, I'm going to miss my brother at my Seder this year, man. I've never not had a Seder with my bro or my father. Um, I want to mention something also before I move on about gratitude. I'm sorry I'm being a little uh, ADD with you, ADHD with you. And that is... Um, we have arranged with Rabbi Yonah Bookstein to have a Zoom-in Seder if you are alone this Passover um, or you're unable to lead the Seder yourself and you need some help. My good friend, um, my good friend Yonah Bookstein um, from LA, uh, they're three hours earlier, of course. He's going to Zoom in and you can just, we'll get you the Zoom thing. We're probably going to send it out in an email tomorrow. And... You, all you have to do is put it on before uh, the holiday starts. Uh, candle lighting on Wednesday night is 7.10. You just put it on before 7.10, and Yona's going to be there. You can't really start the Seder till a little later, but he'll do some stuff first uh, to keep you guys occupied. And, um, and it's going to be a, a beautiful opportunity. You're gonna, you'll, put, you'll mute the video and the audio because we want to circumvent some of the issues, the halachic issues, of being captured on camera, which according to uh, some rabbis uh, is poses a halachic problem. And uh, so you just put it on mute and you put it on, you put stop 
for the video, but you'll be able to watch Yona on your on the screen if it's your phone or if or if it's a computer. Um, and uh, he's gonna go probably for about an hour and a half, um, maybe even two hours. Give you a break for the dinner part. He's gonna be with you for the whole seder. Um, and uh, we're doing this together with my friend Yossi Levine at the Jewish Center. He's sending it out to a lot of older people that are alone. And we're using this for the MJE population and anyone else who really needs it. Uh, honestly, that's a loan for this Pesach. We figured out a creative way, circumventing some of the halachic problems uh, and enabling people not to feel completely alone on the night of the Seder. Um, so um, if anyone has any questions about that, please, you can email me offline, markwilds at gmail. And... Uh, uh, let's get back to Dayenu, that's, that's the lesson of gratitude, and so on and so forth. Now, the Arami Oved Mitzrayim, there's another section in the Haggadah, where the Baal Haggadah, the author of the Haggadah, that's the book we use on the Seder night, chooses to tell the story via the person bringing Bikurim. Now, if you lived in the Temple times and you were a farmer in Israel, you couldn't just pluck a fruit off the tree and eat it. The first fruit that grew, the first fruit of the season, you know, we're now coming into spring. We're so hoping that the warmer weather will help bring an end to this corona as well. But when the new season's crops would come in, and if you were a Jewish farmer in Israel, you have this ritual called the Bikurim. It's the first fruit. You take your first fruit, you bring it to Jerusalem. It's this whole ceremony you put in a basket and you tie a little ribbon around it and you have to recite this whole kind of um, uh, declaration and the declaration is basically quoting verses from the Torah that speaks about how our ancestors were slaves in Egypt and then we finally made it to the land of Israel and here I'm a farmer in Israel I have this fruit and it's all about gratitude we take a little fruit it's just the same thing. I have my, my little seltzer here and my coffee, right? I mean, and you make a little blessing. It changes the whole thing. We take a little fruit, we take whatever it is we eat, and we use it as an opportunity to express gratitude. We don't just gobble something in, in our mouths. It's not what we as Jews do. We take a moment to express gratitude. You want to know something? Coffee tastes better. The drinks taste better. Everything tastes better when it's surrounded by gratitude. We make a blessing before we eat, and we make a blessing after we eat. And this is a very, very important idea um, that is uh, expressed on the Seder night, the concept of, of gratitude and, of course, of giving. Um, now, some other ideas that I want to share with you. Now, the boy, the child... Who asks the Manishtana? Who asks the question? Manishtana Halayla, all the questions. So the classic uh, custom in most homes is to pick the youngest. Somebody asked me on the chat here, what if the youngest doesn't want to do it? I said, then have somebody else do it. It doesn't have to be the youngest. But how do you answer the question? And, and, and I always think that, you know, my, I was talking to Jill about this. She says, you know, we all, it's the child inside of all of us. You know, we... we we talk about this Haggadah, it's all, like all about the kids. If you don't know why we do a certain ritual on the holiday, just say it's for the children, it's for the children. You know, it's get the kids to ask. And the truth is, it is, it's true. But we're kind of hiding behind the kids on the night of the Seder, because we all have our own questions. And we're all asking these questions. What is so special about this night? How do I understand this night now? Maybe we should add a fifth question this year about uh, Corona. <laughs> Right, we've got our own plagues to deal with. And uh, the Manishtana is the child asking the question, and there's a debate in the Talmud as how to answer the, the child's question or our own questions. Do you give a historical answer or do you give a theological answer? Do you say, well, your ancestors were enslaved, which is what we do. We say, Avadim Ayinu, Ayinu, Leparo B'Mitzrayim, B'Mitzrayim. Okay, sorry. Which means that we were slaves in Egypt and God took us out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Right? That's the technical, historical answer. 
but we also give a spiritual answer because later on, later on in the Haggadah, we say, Mitzchila Ovdei Avodah Zar Hayu Avotenu. Originally, our ancestors were idol worshippers. But now God brought us to his service. And that's really also an answer to the same question. Because, you know, you can, ans- you can answer any question in Judaism or in life with multiple approaches and perspectives. If you're a historian, you probably want to give a historical answer. Yes, my son, or whoever you're talking to, maybe you're talking to yourself. Um, we were slaves and we were subsequently emancipated and we have to express our gratitude to God on this night that we live the lives of free Jews. But if you're a little more of a philosophical philosophically oriented person or theologically oriented. You don't want to just talk about history. You want to talk about philosophy. You know what really changed? We went from not believing in God to being believers. And not only believing in God, because, you know, our ancient ancestors, when they were slaves, they were very much mired in uh, Egyptian polytheism, worshiping all sorts of other gods. And that's what really changed. Not just that we were emancipated that we were, um, you know, um, freed physically, that's true. But what's interesting to me is that our, our perspective on life changed. We started looking at the sun and at the moon and the Nile and the lamb, all those things we used to worship. We started looking at them as just objects, like they really are, of a higher creation, of this thing called God because we were taken out of Egypt, not simply to be freed, but ultimately to be brought to Sinai, to receive the Torah, and to be a light amongst the nations through the teachings of classical Judaism, of ethical monotheism. That's why we were taken out. Don't be satisfied with one answer to to the question of what we're doing on the Seder night. There are so many different answers, right? And the Haggadah is giving us two, historical, Avadim Ayinu, and then Mitzchil Hayu Avdei Avodah which is the um, the answer of the um, the theological answer we used to be um, we used to be uh, slaves um, uh, excuse me polytheists and, and now we believe in only one God now what's interesting here also is that getting back to the historical answer we say that had God not taken us out of Egypt we'd all still be there now what does that mean is that true if Hashem had not taken our ancestors out of Egypt, we would still be there to this day. All right, Amy just said we are the messengers. Very good. I'm looking at some comments, if anyone's made any comments. Saren, thank you for the Seder solution. My daughter's far away, and this will help us so much. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that, Saren. Uh, I hope, please send my, my love and my best to your daughter also. That's amazing. Um, so uh, if anybody wants to you know, offer a suggestion... Uh, I'm sorry, every time I get really close and you can start looking up my nostrils. <laughs> just kidding. Um, that's because I'm looking at your messages and just scrolling through if anybody asked any questions. I've been doing a lot of lecturing here, but what does it mean that God not taking us out of Egypt, we'd still be there? I mean, the Egyptian empire was ultimately toppled by the Assyrian, and the Assyrian ultimately by the Babylonian, and the Babylonian by the Persian, and the Persian... By the, Ro- by the Greek, and the Greeks by the Romans. And right at some point, the Egyptians would have been out of the picture and, the, and our ancestors would have been freed. So why do we say on the night of the Seder, had, God, had you, God, not freed us, had you, God, not freed us, we would have, we'd still be slaves. That's not true. What do you guys think? Any suggestions, any answers? Amy... We were at the 49th level of impurity. Whoa, we got a ringer with us. Amy, excellent suggestion. So the Kabbalists teach that we were not simply physically emancipated. We were spiritually redeemed because there are 49 rungs of ritual impurity. 50th is sort of like rock bottom beyond which we could never be redeemed. And what this is basically teaching us is that had God not taken us out of Egypt, and remember we said a few few sessions ago, Egypt is not just a place on the map. That was my little Parsha video that I released before Shabbat. Egypt is not just a place on the map. Egypt is a state of mind. Mitzrayim is from the word mitzar, constriction. 
and um, we were really down and out spiritually. We were on the lowest, lowest rung. One rung lower, we would have been irredeemable, which is why we had to leave in a haste, right? The Torah says, because you left Egypt in a haste. Why do we have to leave in a rush? We gave some other answers last week. Another reason is, is because if we stayed for one more second, we would have hit rock bottom and there'd be no turning back. So when we talk about God, had, had God not taken us out of Egypt, then we'd still be there. We're talking spiritually. We would have hit 50th level. We would have been, there would be nothing left to redeem. And that is something that we think about when we count the Omer. Something I wanted to mention also is that on the second night of Passover, so Passover starts Wednesday night, the second night of Passover, which is Thursday night, we have the opportunity to start counting the Omer. Uh, and we count actually 49 days all the way to the holiday of Shavuot. And there's, of course, a connection between Passover and Shavuot because Passover is when we got out of Egypt. Shavuot is when we finally stood at Sinai to receive the Torah. And that was the whole point of leaving Egypt. It wasn't just to be physically emancipated. It was to be spiritually redeemed. And every day we went, we climbed up one rung on that ladder from the moment we were taken out of Egypt till that moment, 49 days later, when we stood at Sinai to receive the Torah, we went up one spiritual level, one day at a time. And that's what we're doing now. Starting next Thursday night, Seder starts Wednesday night. The night of searching for the Chametz is... Tuesday night, and two nights from now. So Thursday night, the second night of Passover, we start reciting the Omer. Today's the first day of the Omer. And then on Friday night, we're going to say today's the second night of the Omer. And on Saturday night, we're going to say today's the third day of the Omer. And every day, we're supposed to see ourselves. We're supposed to work on ourselves. On another, the Kabbalah teaches in another aspect of our personality and who we are to get ourselves up, up, up from whatever Egypt we're in, from whatever Mitzrayim, is keeping us imprisoned and enslaved within ourselves, we move up the ladder until finally we're standing at Sinai to receive the Torah on Shavuot. And I am hoping and I am praying. Whoa, how amazing would it be for this Shavuot if we were one rung every day, closer and closer, and we were completely gone with this corona thing by the time Shavuot comes about and that we were counting this year not just getting ourselves out of the spiritual muck, but getting ourselves out of this terrible, this virus. And we do everything we can right now to socially isolate ourselves. And we get everyone in the world to do this and we stay healthy and we get out of this thing so that we're standing at Sinai, receiving the Torah and this Corona thing is way behind us by the time Shavuot comes. Please, God. Um, yes, Kabbalah 100% rocks, Amy. A hundred percent it does. Um, okay. Any other comments or questions about this? It's a very, very important idea that I wanted to share about how important it is to get out of your Egypt and that Egypt and slavery, because a lot of people are like, you know, this whole slavery thing doesn't really speak to me anymore. Now, maybe this year, because we're all quarantined, it does a little more this year. But in general, a lot of American Jews are like, oh, I'm not enslaved. What do I need this for? We are enslaved. We may not be physically enslaved, but we all have got some kind of enslavement to our own devices, to our own vices, to our own habits, to whatever it is that's constricting us, that's keeping us in our Egypt. Figure what that thing out, what, what that thing is, and start redeeming yourself from that. That's a really, really important thing to do. Um, if anybody knows what time it is, I, I have one or two other ideas I want to share, but I don't want to... Um, Keep you for too too long. Um, I'm going to leave something else actually for the mock seder. I'm trying not to give away too much information. I want you guys all to come to the mock seder, which is going to be a powerful experience tomorrow night. Um, I want to mention one other thing, which is really um, interesting about the Haggadah. And when we talk about going from believing in multiple gods to believing in one God. A lot of people are like, so they believe in a lot of gods. We believe in one God. What is the difference? What really is the difference? And I've been speaking a little more about this idea. It's a very important spiritual concept in Judaism 
of God's unity, of God's oneness. We don't simply say that we believe in one God, and that's what, why we were redeemed from Egypt, because before we believed in the moon God, and the sun God, and the, the Nile God. By the way, all of the ten plagues, and you can share this at your Seder, every single one of the plagues was trying to defeat another Egyptian ancient deity. That's why the Nile was worshipped, turned into blood. Do you know that there was the sun god, right? right? So there was a period of darkness. That was the ninth plague. Every single, the, they used to, um, the frog was like the fertility god. That's why they had frogs. They used to worship the, the male, the, the, the male-born sun. That was the last of the ten plagues. Every one of the plagues is to defeat the notion that there are multiple gods. But, but like, why is that so important for us? So it's not just in Judaism we believe that there's, that there's um, one God as opposed to multiple. It means that everything emanates from one place. When we talk about the unity and the oneness of God, and this is an, an, I think, an idea that I think about when I say the Shema, and I would recommend when you say the Shema every day to keep this idea in mind. We say Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Okay, so Hashem is one as opposed to two or three or four. There's only one. No, it means that there is only God. There's a very important principle in Kabbalah, and it's encapsulated in the three words, Ein Od Milvado. There is nothing other than God. Because when we say that there's only one God, we mean that everything is ultimately an expression of that God. Everything, in, in a sense, even pales in comparison to God, because in our belief system, all there was before creation, before you and I came into the picture, before there was a world, before there was anything, all there was was God. God then took a step back. The Kabbalists teach he was mitzamtim himself. He constricted himself to allow for the physical world. But that was just an expression of God's will. So everything in the physical world is ultimately an expression of Hashem. And not just people. Even in Abinah objects, this beautiful, amazing mug, we put my put my coffee in, everything is, even in the physical, inanimate world, I'm trying to say, is an expression of the one true unity. And this is a very, very important idea. Uh, Lauren uh, Brown, um, I'll answer your question in one minute. What, what do you think this plague is here to teach us? Tricky question, I know. Okay, so uh, I'll get to that in a second. This oneness of God demonstrates that life isn't multiple and fragmented and disunified. And even though we have different opinions and we look different from each other when we argue and we get upset with each other, we're all an expression of the one true unity of Hashem. Like all of the universe, all of life is literally from the same place and an expression of the same thing. And that is a very, very different way of looking at the world. And that's one of the reasons why we close our eyes when we say the Shema, I taught this a few weeks ago when we first started with Corona and I was giving classes on mindfulness. Why, why do we close our eyes when we say the Shema? Because when you keep your eyes open and you look around, everything looks fragmented. Everything looks disparate and different. And therefore, we relate to other people as though they have nothing to do with us. And we relate to inanimate objects. We relate to everything. And then there's God. Right? There's my life of God over there. And there's the cup. There's my mug, there's my friend, there's my this. No, it's all one thing. Ain od mil vado. There really is nothing other than God. Because it's all an expression of God's creation. Okay, and even though things look different, they're really from the same place. And I think that attitude can change the way we deal with each other and look at the world. And sometimes you have to close your eyes to just even imagine that. But you're not imagining something. That's the reality. The true reality is that there's only one. Um, what, what we get tricked up by is things that look multiple and diverse and pluralistic, but it's not. It's all coming from one place, a very fundamental Jewish teaching. Uh, I'm just going to end in a moment, but I um, want to answer Lauren's very legitimate question. What do you think this plague is here to teach us? I really like the way you phrase the question, because the question is not phrased as, why did God bring this plague? on mankind? I don't know the answer to that question. And if anybody can tell you, then, you know, it's not an ask the rabbi, it's ask the prophet. Okay, we don't have prophecy, so we can't really know. The one thing we can do, though, when things like this happen, is ask ourselves, how can we grow? How can we learn? How can we become better people? 
what can this plague maybe teach us? So this particular plague, if you will, the corona, what is it doing? All right, so Amy's suggesting to go inward. I think that's one of the things. I think that um, one of the aspects of Judaism that's getting a real gut punch right now is the social aspect of Judaism. And maybe this is an opportunity to try to get ourselves into the deeper part of Judaism. We're just talking about the oneness and unity of God, very deep idea. Because so much of our Judaism perhaps is too social. You know, there's this thing called social orthodoxy. Uh, it came out a few years ago that people in the Orthodox community are really just in it because of the social components. They don't really subscribe theologically or believe or are connected spiritually. And this might be an opportunity for such an individual or for anyone, whatever denomination you affiliate yourself with, to ask ourselves, what do I believe in? And how much of my Judaism is social, such that when I don't have the social, what do I continue to do? How do I continue to practice as a Jew when I can't practice with other people, when I don't have all the bells and whistles of the synagogue and the rabbi and the cantor and all the fun stuff going on? Now, I'm not saying that stuff's not important, but that shouldn't define our Judaism. Our Judaism should be about our relationship with Hashem. And that's difficult because I think a lot of it has been very much peppered by the social component. So this is one lesson and one teaching, perhaps, of the corona time, which is to, to search and to ask ourselves, what is our personal relationship with Hashem? And if I can't pray with a tzibur, with a community, then I still want to pray. And if I can't go to a class, I still can go on a class online, or I can open a book and read a Jewish book on my own, or go online. There's so much Torah online right now. So I think that's one thing. That's sort of our relationship with Hashem, the vertical. I think our relationship with our fellow human being is another teaching and lesson of Corona. Because this is really getting us to appreciate the community that we don't really have right now. This is getting us to appreciate some of our friends. I was talking to my daughter. She's really missing spending. She's very social. She's a lot of friends in high school. And she's really missing, you know, spending time in person with her friends. She's online with them all the time, but it's not the same. And I think that's another great lesson in teaching to learn perhaps not to take as for granted our community and our friends um, and our loved ones and our parents and our grandparents and the people that we can't see. Um, and there are different ways of showing your love for your community and for your parents is first of all is just calling them up, supporting your community. You know, just by being on here, I know you're doing this for you. You want to you know, be entertained a little or learn some Torah, be connected. But by you coming on, you're also help, you're helping keep MJE, our MJ community, alive and growing, which is really, really important. And Rabbi Ezra last night sent out, uh, you can check out the email or just go online. I know people are smarting in terms of money, but we're really smarting in terms of money right now. We didn't have our dinner when we were supposed to. I'm not fundraising in some beautiful hotel over Pesach. So we've actually, unfortunately, uh, really behind the eight ball and are very, <clears throat> could really, really use your support and help. Uh, you can spread that around. We're uh, also applying for the government's care package like a lot of small businesses and non-for-profits are. So these are, these are things that we can do or we can learn to not take our community, our families, our friends, the very people we can't be close with now physically, right? We can't be in the same room, we can't even see I went to see my dad last week. I stood across the street from his apartment building and called him on the phone and we had a conversation. That's how I'm seeing my dad right now. I mean, it's crazy. Got him to work um, FaceTime, which is a huge feat. Um, so, um, so I think those are two, two powerful lessons. One in our relationship with Hashem. We don't have the community, but we still have our relationship with Hashem. And are we expressing that through prayer, through Torah study, through all the mitzvah, through preparing for Passover? You, you, you should just know that the most important institution in Jewish life is not the synagogue, it's the home. And most of us are shut up in our homes. We can make our homes kosher for Passover. We can pray in our homes. We can observe Shabbat in our homes. We can, we can do everything Jewish in our homes, right? Prayer doesn't have to be in synagogue. It can be at home as well. So that's one thing we can learn. And the other thing is each other. That's sort of the vertical. Now I'm talking about the horizontal, is that we can learn to better appreciate each other. And you can still express that appreciation and gratitude for your parents, your grandparents, your aunts and uncles, your friends, 
call them up. I, I end every single day by saying, don't let the day go by without calling someone who really needs to hear from you. If you've had corona and thankfully survived it and you're fine and you're over it, you tested negative now, uh, go to the hospital and um, take all the precautions with the mask and the gloves and social distancing. And um, you can speak to Avi Yashavsky, you can speak to Moshe Bellows, others who have had corona and thank God are fine and have um, donated blood, huge, huge mitzvah to be able to do this. Um, there's also opportunities for volunteering to help the homebound and the elderly. Um, so if anyone's interested, just be in touch with us. We'll tell you how to get involved um, and to help uh, bring packages to people who are in need. Uh, if anybody has any questions about preparing for Passover or anything else, we're going to continue talking about Pesach as we get closer. Uh, tomorrow, we will continue. I've got some great stuff prepared for tomorrow, for Monday, uh, and for Tuesday. Uh, we're even going to try to do a class on Wednesday before Pesach. We're going to do a class. Yeah, we're going to try to do a class before Pesach. Yeah, why not? Let's just keep learning Torah together. Guys, thanks for sticking with me. Enjoy whatever lunch that you had or are having. Um, thanks, my friend Ozzy Cutter, for, if you're still online here, for tuning in. For Gail Goldspiel, I see Lauren Brown. Great question that you asked before. And Grace joined us as well. Uh, you uh, and Todd Shaw. And a lot of great people here today. Amazing. God, thank Guys, thank you so much for joining. Have a wonderful and blessed day. Stay healthy. Keep practicing social distancing, stay exercise, do everything you do to keep yourself positive and healthy. And have a wonderful, wonderful day. Take care. Thanks for Luke tuning in. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Wildcast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do, it helps others discover the show. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us today.